You can be seated, and while you're sitting down, take out your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. It's great to see everybody. My name's Colby. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. Uh, We're thankful that we've had this opportunity to gather and worship together. We're going to continue our series in Romans chapter 1. If your third through fifth grader has not dismissed for class, they can do so now. Um, Sorry that slide popped up a little early for some of y'all. Some of them had an early rapture. I don't know how theological that is, but it happened. I'm ringing a little bit too while we're up here. Just bring me down a little bit. I'll, I'll talk loud. The people will hear me back there. Hopefully you had a chance to hit up Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18 through 23. Verses 18 through 23 as we continue our series, Gospel Clarity. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they were without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the glory of the gospel. Lord, that as you do that, that we would have the courage, Lord, to see the genuine brokenness of our own hearts and lives, the destruction of sin, or to even your wrath against it, to acknowledge, Lord, that Lord, our sin is not trivial. And Lord, I pray that through that you would give us a fresh hope and joy in the gospel that has saved us despite our destruction. And Lord, holds out hope for us, even though we deserve condemnation. Lord, would you fill us with joy as we see the gospel in a fresh way today? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I've titled this sermon, An Insider's Guide to the Human Heart, because I really feel like this is what is going on with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. We go inside our real human experience, and he helps us navigate what it's like to think about God. I I don't know, um, I've recently become interested in travel documentaries, um, watching various travel videos that kind of show you what's, what a place is really like. I like to travel, and because of your kindness and my upcoming two-month sabbatical after the first of the year, I've been trying to figure out where I want to spend some time. So Andy and I, the other night, even we were watching some YouTube videos, and I love it. You know, you, it's one thing to hear about someplace from a distance, but, but when you can get an insider's guide, it's just fascinating. You can start crossing things off the list, realizing what is there and what is not. And maybe you've done this before, but these little 10, 15 minute videos, they can just, they can inform you 
in a deep way about places that you've never been. It's a miracle. You no longer have to wait till you go there to decide whether you're going to like the place. Well, one of the ways I like to do it, actually, is to find the videos that despise the place. Like, you can also find these videos that are like, 10 reasons you're going to hate Costa Rica. I was like, I'm pretty sure there's not 10 reasons to hate Costa Rica. But, you know, they try to show you the sort of underbelly of what it's like to go to the beach there or something. And, and I'm like, I'll just take the beach. And, uh, you know, so these videos are really interesting. I find myself doing this in other ways. Uh, maybe you do this too. You know, Amazon reviews are kind of the same thing, aren't they? You know, you find a product, you're like, I'm going to buy this, uh, this thing. And for me, I look at the reviews, but, you know, the good reviews, they don't really, they're not all that helpful. You know, people all the time are like, oh, yeah, I love it. And they've had it like for a day. You got to find the people who are really mad to get like this honest, you know, like I feel like if I can survive the angry guy, then I probably want to buy the product. That insider view, I always punch to the, to the one star reviews on Amazon and be like, all right, give it to me. Let me just decide if I can take this. And then if I decide I want it after that, I feel like, man, I'm pretty confident. Well, Paul is, is giving us an insider tour of what it's like to be human. In relation to God. That's what he's doing here. It's fascinating. He tells us things about ourselves that we start, when we start to hear it, we start to realize, yeah, this is, it's not just how the people out there relate to God. This is how human beings relate to God and what we do because of our sin. And that's kind of what he's doing as he enters here into verse uh, 18. He's going to show us around inside our human experience and point out the complex work of suppression that keeps us seeing, uh, from seeing what is clear about God. So that's the main idea of the sermon as we look at these verses, is that the, the gospel becomes powerful when we see what we've, uh, we've suppressed. And I'd put it this way, we veil the gospel. We sort of undermine our joy in the gospel, the glory of the gospel, this good news. We suck the life out of the good news by suppressing God's displeasure with our unrighteousness. Now, that may not be immediately apparent to you at the beginning, but this is what Paul is going to argue in this text. One of the things that we do is we avoid thinking about God's displeasure with our sin and our unrighteousness, and because of that, the gospel just doesn't taste all that good to us. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to force us to look these realities in the eye. And so the main idea of this passage is that we veil the gospel by suppressing God's displeasure with our unrighteousness. And he's going he's to explore that. Notice in the text this main idea. If you look at the beginning of verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, right at the beginning, it says, for. You know you're in the middle of a conversation. It's not the beginning of the conversation. He's not starting a new idea. He's contrasting it with what he said in 16 and 17. So last week, if you think about what he said, he said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And look what he says in verse 17. Why is he not ashamed? For in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And Trace helped us understand that primarily the way we understand what he means is the righteousness that we are, are, are given by God as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ is revealed in the gospel. 
This right standing was declared to us through what Jesus has proclaimed and what he's done on the cross. And now to really appreciate it, Paul wants to, he wants to unravel the beauty of this. And right away he jumps in, he says there was something else that was revealed. For us to appreciate what God revealed in the gospel of Jesus, to not be ashamed of it, to see it as the power of God for our salvation, first we have to see what else he's revealed. And the answer to that, at the beginning he says, this is, this is needed because the wrath of God is something we're all aware of, even if we suppress it. It's kind of an interesting thought if you think about it. He says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So let me just say it plain here, what Paul is introducing. He's saying that in our st- sinful state, without a remedy or change, that God is against us. That's kind of interesting. We just sang a song about God being for us, right? Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Well, the first thing we have to ask about our condition in life is, is God for us or against us? And before we can really appreciate singing that song and what God has done in the gospel, we have to realize that our unrighteousness and our sin is a sort of wickedness that provokes the wrath of God. That God isn't pleased. He doesn't find our sin trivial. In fact, it causes him to set himself against our lives as people who want to live apart from him. So in our ungodliness, in in our unrighteousness, God opposes us. And that means it's possible, quite possible in your life right now, your relationship to God is one that is apart from genuine faith in Christ and you're just sort of using God or going on with your life doing what you desire or what you hope and you think God should be empowering your dreams and desires but he's against them because they're wicked and ungodly. They're detached from a real relationship with him and they're unrighteousness. They're they're actually destructive to the lives of other people. And so God sets himself against where you are headed. And so so here, this is is what Paul is saying. He's saying that, that, that the first thing we must come to grips with is what's revealed about God's position against our sin and our ungodliness, and it's that he's against it and those who embody it, embrace it, and will not part with it. God experiences significant displeasure over the ways that we live disconnected from his priorities and concerns. So if our lives primarily are not wrapped around a concern for God's priorities, we're living in a sort of ungodliness. If we spend most of our time and our energy not thinking about what God desires for how we live and what we do, that's a state of ungodliness, an absence of connection to God's priorities. And it's very likely in that state, not ordered by God's priorities, that we're also living in a state of unrighteousness, something that doesn't set us at right with our fellow human beings in the way that we live our life, the things that we do are actually destructive towards them. And we may find these things trivial when we think about sin in a general category, but our, our participation in sin is a participation in ungodliness and unrighteousness that God has revealed his wrath towards. 
So Paul's case is that if we took a good look around us and observed our own lives, we would see in the world we live in that sin has separated us from the purposes of God and the result has been disastrous in such a way that God's rejection of our whole way of life as human people is obvious. It's been revealed. We can see it and we know there's something not quite right. I don't know if you feel that. I don't know if the lack of amens is suppression of the truth. But these things are obvious if we'll stop and observe the world we live in with some honesty. But just the world we live in, he's, you know, as he's talking about it, it's easier to think of it as they, 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 and their sin. But he's talking about humans. He's talking about the whole of humanity and the way we relate to God and ignore his displeasure with wickedness. We do, really his point at the end of verse 18 is that we do everything we can to avoid leveling with God's displeasure toward our, toward our sin. We avoid it, we hide from it, we distract ourselves from it. It's a sentiment captured powerfully in W.H. Auden's poem entitled September 1st, 1939. It's a poem I was first introduced to in Ray Ortland's little book called Gospel, which I think all of you should read. But he mentions this poem and it says this. He described uh, what he saw. W.H. Auden describes what he saw one evening in a nightclub. And he describes it this way. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. Sense of distraction. Lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood. Children afraid of the night, who have never been happy or good. This is, this is the sense that Paul has of the haunted wood of our lives, where we, are, we, we fail to really acknowledge the damage our sin does fail to acknowledge the brokenness caused by evil and wickedness. And, and the song goes on, and the lights flash, and they distract us, so we never have to come to grips with our separation from God. And I, I just have to believe in a room like this, there's many of us that are distracting ourselves so much that we want a little dose of God, but we don't realize how deeply we need to be transformed. That we don't just need a dose of religion. That we desperately need a saving work of God for us through Jesus Christ. An invasion into our lives of God's real power that is in the gospel. But, you know, listen, we don't ask for it until we find out we need it. And this is what he's saying here. We're, but we're busy suppressing that reality so we never come to the point where we, we feel the, the just absolute vulnerability of being people who cannot find our way out of the haunted wood of our lives and need God to come in and shine the light. And so this is the main idea that we see here that is going on, that if we were to really acknowledge God clearly, that, that we would be alarmed <laughs> But we suppress it so that we can continue to feel not vulnerable. 
So beginning in verse 18 here, Paul wants us to see where we are. He wants us to look around and understand. And from this point in chapter 1 and running to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we have a major section in the structure of the book of Romans that explores the uncomfortable theme of condemnation and judgment before God. And it's sort of like something I say to my kids after Christmas when we've been eating all the candy and the cookies and everything. There comes a point on January 1st where I say, it's time we're going to have to eat our vegetables. Where we've got to go back to doing some of the hard things. And Paul is in a sense saying, hey, before we celebrate and have the banquet, maybe we ought to sit down and ask what we really need. So we're crying out for the right thing. And that's what's going on here. We have this section that is focused on condemnation and the conclusion will be that all familiar verse that really says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which simply means that that sin is everyone's problem and we fall short of deserving to experience the glory that God has available to us in a real relationship with Him. We don't deserve it. We fall short of measuring up. All have sinned. And that's where we are. And so this is the section we're in. Now, once we understand that a lot of our energy is spent on avoiding a knowledge of God's displeasure with our unrighteousness, Paul starts to show us the core strategies we use to avoid that reality. In a sense, we turn down the lights. We play the music. And, he's, he, and Paul is starting to just sort of like turn the music off and turn the lights on and make us look. And it's uncomfortable. It's difficult. Some of you are going to feel so completely challenged by the next two chapters of Romans that you might even be tempted to stop coming to church. And I just want to say, This is an invitation into the God that is who has something significant that can really change and transform us if we will first see where we are. I think if we're honest about it, we'll become more desperate for God. We'll have a greater clarity about the need for this gospel. We'll be less tempted to walk away from drawing near to Him because we will understand just how deeply God wants to bring us into relationship with Him by overcoming a barrier that was more insurmountable than we ever thought. So, here's what happens. He shows us two things then. Uh, For the rest of our message, we're just going to clarify them. He says that we suppress the clarity of God's displeasure in two ways. The first one is by ignoring the call of creation. So what we do is we suppress the clarity of God's displeasure with our sin and our deep need for Him by sort of ignoring the call of God in creation. His clarity to us, His speaking to us about our responsibility to know Him, to connect with Him, to live under His power and His divine uh, care and guidance. Now let me show you what he means. Let's look closely, beginning in verse 9. Look close with me as Paul guides us around the inside of human experience. Notice what Paul says about the ability of of the created world to give us a basic knowledge of God. Now, it can't tell us everything. We call this in theology general revelation. It tells us the general things we need to know to be people who would seek God. And so the assumption Paul has is that you and me should do everything we can to seek to know the God that is. And that we have enough knowledge to begin with to start that process. And we should long to do it. And we can't pretend like like, like he's not there. But Paul Paul says that. He says some things. Look at at how he emphasizes this idea of suppression 
versus what God has made plain about His divine presence. As we begin in verse 19, for what can be known about God, notice that God, what can be known about God is plain to them. If you're an underliner, you might want to underline that. Plain to them because God has shown it to them. Actually, that word plain and shown here in this passage actually are the same word in Greek. It's what, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. So it's sort of like saying that, that it's a false accusation against God and his ability to make things plain to conclude that our sort of sense that, oh, maybe God isn't there or the ways that we go about trying to convince ourselves of that is somehow God's fault for not doing enough work to make it plain. Like, have you ever felt like, man, I really wish God would make it more plain that he's there, that he's real, that we have a responsibility to him? And, and I've felt that in my cynicism. But Paul says that problem is not on God's, God's side. What can be known about God is plain because God has made it plain. This is what he's saying. He says these basic things we can know about God, namely that he is the eternal root of all created things. That means his eternal nature, his eternal power. He doesn't exist in dependence on anyone else, that everything else exists on dependence to him. Like this is a unique thing about God. He's the only self-existing being. Like we can know that. We can see that, that, that the, the realities of life need a rooted eternal presence from which they spring. Like he, he just says we can, we can understand that. And his divine nature, speaking of his rule over creation, he says these things can be, notice in the next verse, can be clearly perceived, clearly perceived through the things that God has made. So they're plain and clearly perceived. God's presence, his eternal power, his divine nature, the things that are necessary for us to know about God, to be compelled to seek him and see that we're responsible to him. These things can be so clearly perceived in what has been made that our failure to acknowledge them, Paul says, is inexcusable. Notice here in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they, that's us, are without excuse. So what that means is, clearly Paul says here that God has left enough evidence of him and his character in the things that he has made that we have no excuse to pretend like we're not responsible to him. That our sin doesn't matter. We could have never known. That kind of stuff is just suppression of what we already know to be true. That's what Paul is saying here. So we're without excuse. So Paul's argument is then that our lack of belief in God is a result of a darkening of our heart, not the light of creation. So our lack of acknowledgement of God isn't in the light out there, but in the darkness in here. That we've chosen to put a veil over what we see, to sort of put just these really heavy sunglasses over our eyes so that we can go on believing that we have no responsibility to think about how our life relates to God. And this is what he's saying ignoring the call of creation looks like so we suppress what is obvious to get some distance from the uncomfortable reality of our condemnation because of our sin so he's just really 
saying what Psalm 19, 1 through 4 has already told us. Psalm 19 makes Paul's point in a poetic way as David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day after day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge about God. That, that, that as the sun rises, the sun sets, the things we see, all of those things reveal knowledge about who God is. And he even says their voice This work, their voice goes out to all the earth. Nobody can miss it. And their words to the end of the world. So there's this this universal giving out from God of a revelation of His presence in creation if we're willing to acknowledge it with honesty. That's what he's saying. But I think if we're honest, in our culture, we go, oh yeah, yeah, the existence of God is obvious, but wait, We feel a suspicion that this is just a surface observation that falls apart if we press into science. Anybody else get that sense? Religious belief is just thin anti-intellectualism, right? If we start pressing into science, this little house of cards is going to fall down. And in many ways, I think Christians live with a sort of cynicism or fear or insecurity about that. There's this fear that if we study science, we'll discover that life is just a random chance accident. Let me be clear that this is just a poor story about science and not real science. Actually, when you press into scientific discovery and think about it clearly, you're really left with the same sense of wonder at its obvious design, intricacy, its beauty. And you have to marvel at what sort of place we found ourselves in, created by what sort of amazing God. And and you feel a sense of responsibility. Let me just give you two such examples to remind us. The first one is this. When we press in to the, the fine parts of looking at like microbiology, and, and we find intelligent language written in cells. Let me kind of make this make sense. The discovery of DNA in the last century revealed a surprising thing. It revealed that if you could manage to see the building blocks of human beings on a cellular, cellular level, when you open the door to the cells, inside would be a box with a four-digit language that provides the information blueprint of your body. Now, if that doesn't strike you, as remarkable, imagine being a scientist that doesn't believe in God, working your whole life to understand the inner workings of the cell, and opening that door and seeing that God left you a message. But that's exactly what you find. A language in a place where, where somebody had to put it there. That you would have never expected it. In the, in the, on the cellular level, a language. Now, where do languages come from? Intelligent beings use language. And there's only one intelligent being that has access to the cells. We find language. It's a, it was a shocking discovery. A surprising fingerprint of God in an unexpected place. Language always comes from intelligence. And that is what you find when you dig deep into human life. That's one example. But if we were to go big, universe-level observation, the the second thing I think we could look at is the fine-tuning of the universe observed in physics. An article about fine-tuning from PBS sums it up really well. It said, examples of such fine-tuning abound, tweak the charge of an electron, for instance, or change the strength of the gravitational force or the strong nuclear force in physics just a smidgen. And the universe would look very different and likely be lifeless. The challenge for physicists 
the article says, is explaining why such physical parameters are what they are. That's the challenge. How did it get that way? One great example of these fine-tuned factors is how finely tuned the mass density of the universe is. Just one factor in all the universe is like the fine-tuning of the mass density of the universe. Um, how finely tuned is it? Well, physicists believe that if the mass density of the universe differed by more than 1 in 10 to the 59th power, there would be no galaxies or planets at all. Now, can just, some of you got in mind 1 in 10 to the 59th power? You can feel that, right? It's like a difference of 1 in, you know, 1 with 59 zeros. Like, I can't, we can't even wrap our head around how finely tuned that is. It's just that we had to make up like a little system to keep track of it, right? X59 or something. But how finely tuned is that? Well, astrophysicist Hugh Ross says it this way. Here's what it means. In terms of the specificity of just this one, this one item. He says it this way. He says, imagine comparing the universe, if we were to take the universe, compare it to an aircraft carrier, like say the USS John C. Stennis which measures 1,000 feet long, 10 football fields long, huge aircraft carrier with 100,000 tons of displacement when it's in water, this massive. Well, if this, if this aircraft carrier were as fine-tuned as the mass density of the universe is, if you had to be as specific about the aircraft carrier as, we, as God had to be about the universe, then subtracting a billionth of a trillionth of a mass of one electron from the total of the aircraft would sink the ship. Some of you are saying, still, you're going to have to help me with what that means. <laughs> it means that God measured twice and cut once. And he nailed the measurement to an exactitude that we can't even think about with our minds. It's just further emphasis on what Paul has said here, that God's necessity... And his authority is clearly known in the world that he created. And we're, we're without excuse if we claim to miss it. And then fail to press in, God, what do you want from my life? What do I need to do? How can I be right with you? We have no excuse but to do that. To ask that question. But nonetheless, we suppress God's authority. And his displeasure over our unrighteousness by taking it a step further. So the first way we do it is by ignoring the call of creation in the clarity of our responsibility against God, but we do it in another way. Once we sort of acknowledge that, we do it by instilling a convenient religion in place of God. Notice what happens as we continue in the passage. The first, uh, we're done with those verses now down in verse 22. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of this immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So in a sense, what he says here is, is, is that given this, once we turn up the light that God is present, and we, we sort of start to feel our responsibility to God, our next step is to sort of shape God into our own image and get Him under control. We start to reimagine the sort of, well, if I've got to acknowledge a higher power and, and there's some responsibility, let me make sure that I'm still in control of what it's like. I mean, the, 
the sociological history of religion is a game of of simply doing this, of trying to control God into an image that we're comfortable with so that we can accomplish what He wants and make ourselves feel good. I mean, if you think about the sort of the core idea of every religion except for the risen Jesus... It's that, you know, you're kind of, you got some problems, but if you do all of these things, you're not so bad that you couldn't make it. That's man-made religion if I've ever heard it. But you know, we've gotten real good at it here in our own culture. Honestly, the reality is, in recent polls, over 80% of Americans acknowledge a strong or significant belief in God. I'd imagine if you extended the measurements of this question globally with a general emphasis on creation and authority and a divine being, that the numbers would be even higher. That sort of tells us, I mean, people acknowledge and understand there is a divine power who we are responsible to. Our problem does not seem to lie entirely with acknowledging the existence of God, but with acknowledging that the God that actually exists. Let me say that again. Our problem doesn't seem to lie entirely with acknowledging the existence of God, but with acknowledging the God that actually exists. We instead reshape God to be something that we have control over. How often have you heard someone, or even even said yourself, I can't believe in a God that fill in the blank. Right? Can't believe in a God that would allow so much suffering. can't believe in a God who would let that past experience have happened to me. I can't believe in a God who would, dis- would expect me to deny my true feelings. I can't believe in a God who would condemn people to hell. On and on we could go. Pastorally, I've heard them. Conversation after conversation after conversation. And you probably have some of your own. You've got some rules about what you would believe about God, regardless of how he is. (laughs) Those rules aren't attached to what he's actually revealed about his own character. Maybe you haven't even spent that much time thinking about who God really is. You've just spent time shaping him into an image that you feel comfortable with. You see, this is what he means by suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Let's just create a view of God that we're comfortable with and go on preaching that. I got to say, I think we could probably have more people in here and I could probably make more money. The reason we know is because people are doing it all over the place. I mean, our world is chock full of people who are selling a religion that's simply false that is comfortable for people. But where's the word from God that tells us the truth about our brokenness and separation from Him in that we needed a rescue large enough that He took on flesh to go to a bloody cross so that He could pay for our sin and unite us to Himself so He could free us from that sin, bring us into His righteousness, and gift us with eternal life, not because of anything that we've done, but because of His kindness and mercy. One that says to us, it's not because you were good enough. In fact, you were far, far, far worse than you thought you were. God was far kinder than you ever imagined. Where's that? Because we've crafted our own idea, haven't we? So here he points out the various ways we shrink God by crafting Him into images we're comfortable with. 
And the real belief system in our general culture is often shaped less by the truth of God's word and more by our own sense of wisdom and intuition. Claiming to be wise, he says. Claiming to be wise, thoughtful, philosophical. We become fools about God and replace the truth with a caricature of what God is really like that we're comfortable with and that God, that God that we create is never opposed to our brand of sin. You ever notice that? Have you never ever noticed that the God we fashion in our own mind is never against our own feelings? Our brand of sin that we struggle with most? We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Researcher Christian Smith coined the term that best describes our society's general beliefs about God that cut him down to this comfortable size. After extensive research on, a teenager, on teenagers that he published in 2005, which means many of the adults that are here in this room fall into this category, he did extensive research and, and he published them and, and he said he coined the, that, that the religion of America is what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. It's simply the belief that God doesn't need to be particularly involved in your life as long as you're a decent person you can feel free to reach out to him if you need something. That sounds right. I gotta be honest. God doesn't need to be particularly involved. I'm, I'm comfortable with deism. God, you stay out there. I wanna understand what's going on here. You have, you, you've, you've got thoughts about my life? What I should do? I mean, I should have been thinking about you when I made that big decision. Wait a minute, no, 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 I, just stay out there. If I need you, I'll let you know. Right? Of course, we hit the time, we need him. Lord, help me, why did, why, where are you? We put him out there, and we're like, well, hang on, come back in here. But if I come in here, things got to change. You see, we've shaped this, this, this religion for ourselves, that says, of course he wouldn't want to help me. I'm decent. I'm not as bad as that guy. But I mean, how bad is it to ignore the God of the universe who has purposes and priorities for our life? I mean, we just don't want to think about it, do we? Like how deeply of a problem it is. How bad is it to ignore the ways we fail to love one another and image God in our relationships? Like, if we start to, to really believe that God is against our sin, you know, we've actually got a large pile to be concerned about. But we would rather have a religion that looks like that. Now listen, Paul says all of that, but remember, he said all of this stuff in contrast to what he said in verses 16 and 17, that the good news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that God's righteousness for us has been revealed, not just his condemnation for us. The good news is that God has made it possible for unrighteous people to be right with him through faith and not through self-improvement. 
For us to simply acknowledge our desperation and where we are and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't deserve to be in right standing with you, but I believe you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. And that is enough for me. I'll stop pretending like I've measured up. I'll stop pretending like I'm good. And I'll just acknowledge to you, God, that I've blown it entirely. And whatever you want to do to put it back together, you can do. If we're going to experience the power and joy of the gospel in a fresh way, we're going to have to open ourselves up to the truth that our situation in life is way worse than we expected. God has clearly revealed that He is our Creator. We have a deep, important responsibility to order our lives around His purposes and commands. Our failure to do so has so deeply ruined His creation that He has deep displeasure and wrath against our unrighteousness, our God ungodliness, and in, in order to numb ourselves to that reality before Him, we choose to shrink away from Him, to shrink Him down to a therapeutic rabbit's foot, pretend like we're better people than we really are and and the truth is out of that we deserve to be condemned separated from him as a part of his separating wickedness out from his creation when he sends his son to judge everything at his appointed time that's what we deserve but listen even seeing this God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us sent his son first to die in our place and to unite us to his life so that through faith in the filling of his spirit he could separate us from the broken world and give us the experience of his grace and love and he's prepared to do that for us for all eternity The amazing thing is knowing all of that, Christ stands even now to welcome us into a right relationship with Him. No tricks, no gimmicks. Just Jesus in our place for our sins bringing us to God. That's our hope. That's our hope. And any sense that we have another way to bring ourselves into a real relationship with God is just a suppression of the truth. Think about it. That God has chosen to make a way in Christ. And today that way is open to you. Jesus himself, he invites you to respond by faith. He invites you to rest in faith. He invites you to be able to to become transparent and open and honest in faith so that through that honesty and confession, as we get real with God and we get real with one another, we experience real change. And if you want that, that's what we want. That's our desire to to have a community where we're honest about our failings and we're celebratory about God's provision in Christ. And so today, you have the opportunity, if you've never trusted Jesus, to to turn from clinging to your sin and ignoring God to trusting that He is for you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. We can say, who can stand against us? Who can bring a charge against us if Jesus stood in our place? If God is for us because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, nobody can stand against us. And God himself won't stand against us. Will you respond in faith today? Have, do you, I just want to ask you one clear question. If you're here today and you don't know, if you stood before God right now and had to give an account for your life, if God would receive you with joy, 
If you don't know that, would you have the courage today to get clarity about your eternity? It's the most important thing that could happen in your entire life, given this, that you would say, today I want to stop suppressing the truth that I need God and need to turn from my sin, and I want to trust what Jesus did on the cross. Today, would you be willing to stop suppressing the truth, receive that hope, and confess Christ? And be clear, forgiven, and restored to God. Would you bow your heads with me as we close out our time together? I'm not going to prolong this. But I'd like your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I'm not going to ask anybody to make a walk down the aisle. Anything like that. But I just want you to put a circle around yourself for a moment. As you think about what you've heard today about God, what we've heard from His Word. And if you're here today and you would say, I don't, I'm not confident about my eternity my relationship with God, and I'd like to know that I'm saved and trust in Christ. If you would say, if, that, if that's you, right where you're at, you say, today, I want to put my faith in Jesus. Nobody's looking around, heads bowed and eyes closed. Would you just raise your hand up so I can pray for you? Thank you. You'd say, I, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I've really ever genuinely acknowledged my sin and turned to Christ and willing to open my life to God. You say, today, I, I want to I start that journey. I don't want to wonder anymore. I want to live in fear and uncertainty about it. I want to know that I'm forgiven and welcomed in the presence of God. Just slip your hand up. Right there where you're at, if you just respond to the Lord and say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my life I've turned away from you and I've tried to ignore my responsibility to you, but today, Lord, I want to I wanna turn back to you. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Thank you for giving me genuine hope that I could come to you, draw near to you, in Jesus, you wouldn't be against me. That my sin can be forgiven. Today, I open my life and ask that you come and transform it. Fill me with your spirit. Give me eternal hope and confidence of my life with you. Lord, I, I just pray right now for each person here, Lord, that they would have that kind of clarity. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be a church where we are trivial with the things we hear from your word, where we trivialize them and run from them and hide from them and suppress them, but Lord, that we'd be able to live open and honest lives. And today, Lord, for those who trust in you, I pray that they would be reminded that we don't gain our status or reputation from our own effort and work, but Lord, that we have none. We're bankrupt without you at the cross. Lord, the ground is level. And Lord, that we would, we would live in the light. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to see the ways in our own life even still that the remnants of sin cause us to suppress the truth of our own sin and the need for genuine repentance and transforming work in our heart and lives. Would you remind us of that, that 
that those impulses still remain and help us to surrender them to you, to seek confession and community in a way that would help us to bear the burdens of those together. And Lord, that we would experience a genuine renewal and refreshment in the spirit that transforms our lives into the image of your son. Lord, we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.